Tina. And welcome back to another episode of our podcast, The Underground Economist. Today we're going to be talking about environmental economics and all things to do with being more eco-friendly. So to start, we thought we'd go over five things and like small scale changes that you can do to be more environmentally friendly. So we'll get into them. So the first one is to conserve energy by switching to environmentally friendly electricals. So you can buy environmentally friendly light bulbs um, and eco-friendly power sockets. Okay, so the next thing that you can do is think more about plastic reduction. So using reusable containers, grocery bags, and where possible switching from plastic bags to paper foods and bags when ordering takeout and counter products at the supermarket. And also on that note, I know nowadays um, paper straws are quite popular, but I personally don't think paper straws are it because they just get so soggy in my drink. I think um, a better alternative to that are just metal straws because they're quite convenient. You get um, the ones that fold into like a third of their size and you can keep them around in a little socket. And it's like around about the same size as like an AirPods container. So it's quite convenient to just bring around with you everywhere. Yeah, I think those are really great. Like yesterday I was actually at Daiso and they have like a load of metal straws. So they're really easily inaccessible for everyone to get their hands on. I think they're a much like greater switch to make rather than switching to paper straws. Okay, so the third thing is to stop buying fast fashion. So there's lots of different um, you know, ways of reducing your footprint like this. Um, and one of them is using the 30 use thinking ideology. So basically when you're about to purchase an item of clothing or something that would you know, classify as fast fashion, you think, am I going to be able to get 30 uses out of this item within the next, say, nine months? So, you know, before I'm going to go and order a new T-shirt, I'm going to think, OK, well, how much wear am I realistically going to get out of that? You've got a lot of websites nowadays where you can sort of rent clothes. So you rent them for like a week, you try them out, see if you like them, see if it's comfortable and it fits. And if you like it, you officially buy it. And if you don't, you can always return it. So I feel like that's quite a good alternative to just going to the store and then buying it. Yeah, just making one t-shirt takes about 2,700 litres of water, which is enough water for one person to drink for 900 days. So if you think about it like that, do you really need to buy this extra one t-shirt that's most probably going to end up in a landfill quite soon? It's really just about thinking about ethical consumption and, you know, how much do I actually need this item? So I think as well as like, you know, renting clothes, it can be quite useful to, you know, go to thrift stores and buy secondhand on apps like Depop. Um, And this is just a great way of like, you know, reusing items of clothing. So if they're still in good condition or, you know, someone has bought this item and then thought, oh, I don't really need this or I don't really use this that often. Well, you know, they've had it for a while and they've never really got around to wearing it. They can, you know, give it to one of these thrift stores, charity shops, that kind of thing. And then you can go and buy it. And so if you just think about it in that sense, it's a lot more like, you know, ethical and everything to buy secondhand and to buy stuff that's already been produced rather than having to like, you know, reproduce the exact same T-shirt. And then the fourth thing you can do is to eat less meat. So meat and dairy are responsible for the majority of greenhouse gas emissions in the agriculture industry. And I'm not saying you should completely cut it out. I know personally, I would never be able to go vegetarian or vegan, but just trying to reduce the number of times a week you're consuming meat to reduce the methane and nitrous oxide emissions can really help. Um, And this also helps with water conservation. So 10,000 litres of water is used to produce 0.5 kilograms of meat. So if you think about it like that, you know, maybe just once or twice a week, allow yourself to have meat and the rest of the week, try to have more of a plant-based and eco-friendly diet. And also in most restaurants nowadays, they always have vegan or vegetarian options. Then a couple have like 
um, meat alternatives, like you've got the Impossible Burger. Um, so there's always that to switch to instead. And then you've always got substitutes like tofu um, that you could use instead. And then finally, the fifth thing is where possible, you know, when going out for short periods of time, using reusable masks and disposables. So it's kind of linked to the one about plastic reduction before, but obviously right now we are in a pandemic. So, you know, for school, for example, I might choose to wear a disposable face mask because I'm going to be wearing it for seven hours a day. But if you're just popping out to like the supermarket or just, you know, to go on a quick walk or something, it might be, you know, a good idea to maybe try a, just a reusable um, face mask. So, you know, you can get them made out of cotton and materials like that that are still as protective for you, but are just a lot more eco-friendly because when you get home, you can just pop them in the wash and then use them again and again. So next we're going to talk about COVID's impact on the environment. In early April, right, when um, shutdowns were widespread, it's sort of when Corona was first starting out, global carbon emissions were down by 17%. But as of June 11th, um, those same global carbon emissions are still down only by 5%, even though normal activity is not yet fully restarted. So even though fewer people are going out, there's there are fewer cars on the road, there's less production by factories and therefore carbon emissions, we still are somehow still releasing away way too much pollution. Yeah, so I think as well as that, it's quite important to think about the fact that even though there are minor reductions now that we've been talking about, in the future, you know, this isn't going to have a major impact on our environment. For example, yeah. we had these like decreases in emissions, right? Um, and, you know, there's lots of air travel and just like things like that, especially right now, like the UK is currently in lockdown. But you have to think about the fact that as soon as things start to reopen, as soon as people are able to fly again and are able to travel again, these emissions are just going to start creeping back up on us. And that rather than saying, oh, that's it, this is going to be like for a prolonged period of time, we have to think about the long term. In the long term, is, is COVID really going to have an impact on our environment in terms of emissions? Probably not, because people are going to start, you know, using air travel. They're going to start as lockdown restrictions at ease, you know, commuting more to work and just, you know, using all, a lot more energy on the whole. And I think um, nowadays, because we have um, the time where a lot of people aren't using say for example um public transport and also i think that nowadays because people aren't using say for example as much public transport um as they were pre-covid now is a time to really spread the message and start maybe investing into more green transport so then um post-covid we hopefully don't reach the same levels of carbon emissions and pollution that we did pre-covid so i think now is sort of a time where we can maybe reset the way that we live to help the earth yeah, I really agree with that. I think using COVID is almost like a learning curve for environmental damage. So thinking about the fact that right now we've seen how a lot of people can work from home in these non-essential jobs. They don't, you know, children aren't going to school, for example. People aren't going to commercial offices. So there's no need to commute and transport to these and get transport to these places. And there's also not really any need to have like the power on in these places. So I think we can use it as like a learning curve in the sense of, okay, well, which industries don't really need people to be in as many offices? And, you know, um, is it really important for people to fly across country for business meetings or can they just be held over online? Can they just be held over Zoom? Because that would tremendously reduce the amount of air travel. And um, one thing to, I suppose, sort of put in perspective, um, 
how much COVID has helped the environment and reduce pollution is um, China, say for example, um, because the lockdowns and other measures um, resulted in a 25% reduction in carbon emissions and a 50% reduction in nitrogen oxide emissions. And many scientists think that that would have saved over 77,000 lives over two months. So just to put into perspective how terrible and detrimental pollution is. So one thing I think we should also um, be aware of is that all these black swan events, like say for example in the financial crisis from 2007 to 2008, even though emissions dropped during the actual period of time, as soon as it finished and the economy started recovering, carbon emission levels increased and bounced back. So I think it's even more crucial that we think about and address the problem now. So moving on, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the increase in PPE and disposable masks that are washing up on shores around the world. So between the end of February and mid-April of 2020, more than a billion items of personal protective equipment were given out in the UK alone. However, just a few months later, waterlogged masks, gloves, hand sanitizer bottles and other coronavirus waste has, was already being found on seabeds washed up on our beaches. So already some 8 million tonnes of plastic enter our oceans every year. However, one study estimates that in the UK alone, if every single person continued to use a single face mask a day for a year, it would create an additional 66,000 tonnes of contaminated waste and 57,000 tonnes of plastic packaging. So obviously, we can already see like, the grave impact that this is going to have on our ecosystems and you know, around the world, with people finding masks just washing up on shores. And one um, minor change I think everyone should do that is extremely advantageous and helpful to um, all the wildlife is whenever you're about to dispose of a face mask, just take scissors and cut the two straps because this helps mitigate the chance of birds, legs and um, other animals becoming tangled in the straps. So I think that's quite a small change, but it's very effective. So um, and now we're going to move on to um, the EU and talk about how, um, despite obviously how terrible um, Corona has been and impacted on um, many countries, some silver linings that have been associated with it. The EU has made an investment towards a sustainable energy transition, um, so to do with environmental protection, obviously. And um, it's called the Next Generation EU, and it is a seven-year, one trillion budget proposal and 750 billion pound recovery plan. So um, what it does is it wants to reserve 25% of EU spending for climate-friendly expenditure. So despite all countries obviously being prioritized with vaccinating their population and making sure um, all restriction protocols are being followed. I think it's quite good that the EU is also um, taking advantage of the situation and um, trying to think about it in the long term as well and how to make their trading block more sustainable. Yeah, I really agree with that. I just think it's really nice to see that um, certain you know trading blocks and things are reaching towards being more environmentally friendly. Um, and I think that actually links to something we were going to talk about a bit later, but I think we can talk about it now. And that is the statement, should developing countries be allowed to pollute while they develop? So, you know, a lot of developing economies are working hard to grow their economies, really focused on economic growth, reducing unemployment, increasing national income, and all of these like economics-based things. Um, and that just means that they're not as focused on, you know, protecting the environment. And it's like an ongoing argument now, um, whether they should be allowed to pollute or whether they should be, you know, forced through legislation and regulation 
to um, stop polluting. Yeah, because um, developing countries as a block um, already account for about 60% of global annual emissions. And I think especially countries like those in sub-Saharan Africa, um, they depend majorly on natural resources for revenue and foreign exchange. So um, the funds they generate are obviously driven by the exploitation of natural resources like coal, oil, gas, um, gold, copper, all of that. But um, Okay. However, the exploitation and processing of most of these resources result in immense environmental degradation. Um, for example, this is actually a case study we looked at um, a couple of years ago in geography, but um, the exploration of oil and activities of multinational oil companies in the Niger Delta region has caused substantial land, water and oil and, and air pollution. But for Nigeria to maintain its current economic growth path and sustain its drive for poverty reduction, oil exploration and production will have to continue. Yeah, so I think that my personal, you know, view on the whole statement and, you know, looking at things like that is that it's important to remember that these countries are developing. So they're going to have, you know, less wealth as a nation um, to try and invest into environmentally friendly schemes. But I think that on the same you know, side of things, for example, I think in, in in geography this year, we were looking at how companies and TNCs from the US and Canada like to offshore to places like Mexico, as they have this advantage of lower environmental quality, um, you know, regulation and things like that. So it's easier to outsource production there. And I think that's great. But then at the same time, you know, Canada and the US should be trying to subsidize environmental firms rather than just trying to get the lowest cost of production possible. Um, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, if they are outsourcing to a different country, they are outsourcing their labor, that should still count towards America's emissions or, or you know, Canada's emissions rather than Mexico's emissions. Um, so yeah, I think if we're trying to, you know, achieve the global climate targets of the Paris Agreement, all countries need to be on board. But to some extent, I think, the, you know, the richer, like wealthy and more developed economies can definitely help the developing economies in trying to become more environmentally friendly. But I think one of the biggest barriers preventing developing countries from adopting low emission plans is um, the fact that decarbonization isn't really a priority for them um, compared to bigger issues in the short run, at least, for example, economic growth, like we said at the beginning, and poverty alleviation. I feel like that's one of the biggest ones because um, many countries struggle with um, gaps in technical and financial expertise and um, unlike sub-Saharan African countries, um, a lot of them also lack resources. Um, so they have no other way of creating economic growth. So for example, previously in conjunction with the Australian National University, scientists modeled a deep carbonization pathway that shows how Australia could achieve zero net emissions by 2050, while the economy still grows by 150%. Um, and similarly, you know, data compiled with World Resources Institute shows that 21 countries have managed to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions annually while simultaneously growing their economies since the 2000s. So this includes several Eastern European countries um, that have experienced rapid economic growth in the past two decades. And I guess sets an example that as long as the country already has you know, a little bit of wealth to start with, they can still you know, develop, they can still grow as an economy while still being more sustainable. Um, to conclude, I think it's in the best interest of the entire world to help developing countries navigate these problems. So I think we should help create long-term low emission strategies shaped at 
each country's unique circumstances, which I think is the most quintessential part. And it's crucial to maintain growth while reducing emissions as well. Addressing these problems is the key to unlocking the financial flows required to move to a just, equitable and environmentally responsible future. Um, so next I'm going to move on to Iceland, which I think is a prime example of a country whose economic growth has prospered while also being environmentally sustainable. So almost all electricity in Iceland is produced using renewable energy sources, with 73% of electricity provided by hydropower plants and 26.8% from geothermal energy. And this accounts for around 99% of total electricity consumption in Iceland. In fact, Iceland's approach to renewable energy sources is so groundbreaking that the city of Reykjavik won the Nordic Nature Environmental Prize in 2014, and the city is now in sixth place of the Global Destination Sustainability Index. The city is the world's most sustainable in the world. Reykjavik City has also put forward a climate policy paper with an action plan where goals are established for a carbon neutral city by 2040. Icelanders are constantly exploring alternative fuel and electric cars. So methane, hydrogen and electric cars are in use by a number of civil services within the city and the municipal government intends to increase the number of these types of vehicles further. To conclude, what Iceland has gained in economic terms is considerable, but a major environmental benefit that Iceland has achieved from the switch from oil to geothermal energy is even greater. It has been calculated that Iceland saves what amounts to its annual GDP every 20 years just by making this switch. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our episode on environmental economics. We hope you learned something new and found it interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.